This is the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss, brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation, your external learning and development partner. Each week, we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who are subject matter experts and are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team and organization. Gloria Mark is Chancellor's Professor Emerita of Informatics at the University of California, Irvine. She received her PhD from Columbia University in Psychology and has been a visiting senior researcher at Microsoft Research for over 10 years. She studies the impact of digital media on people's work and personal lives, examining multitasking, attention and stress. She has published over 200 articles in top journals and conferences. Her new book, Attention Span, A Groundbreaking Way to Restore Balance, Happiness and Productivity, presents the science of how our attention spans have diminished in the digital age, along with solutions for regaining focus on well-being. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our guest today is Gloria Mark. This topic, rediscovering your ability to focus. Gloria, you're very welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So, Gloria, we're going to discuss your book right now, Attention Span, Finding Focus for a Fulfilling Life. And I'm going to tell our listeners here, this is a thoroughly insightful book. It reveals the secrets, how to harness the brain's natural rhythms, rediscover your ability to pay attention. And what I really like about this book, there's insights on why multitasking hurts productivity, and we'll discuss this in the podcast, how social media and modern entertainment might amplify or not with the attention span, what drains our resources and how to refuel and the different types of attention. And here's what I noticed, Gloria, as I was reading all the research, all the evidence based uh, facts there is who knew there was a whole field of psychology devoted to attention. Like, that's fascinating. Well, the study of attention is actually quite old in psychology, but it's always been done in the laboratory. So people have been brought into a laboratory. They're given tasks to do. They're pretty abstract, like looking for letters or numbers and measuring reaction time. The part that I would say is new is that I go out into the actual workplace or people's homes, students' campuses, and study people's attention in the course of their actual use of their devices. And you've mentioned a number of companies and different organizations. You work with Microsoft, you've got NASA, and all the the various different things there. And what I really like about improving our attention, especially in today's world, is some of the facts that you share. So let's start with this fact. We spend an average of 47 seconds on any screen before shifting attention. Like What an amazing fact. That's right. I didn't expect it would be that short. I want to emphasize that we use objective measurements to do that. So we use computer logging techniques. So this is software that's installed. It runs in the background People go about their normal work, so we're measuring how often they switch screens. We have it on their computers, on their phones, so we can get a pretty accurate picture. And over, there were about five or six studies, and two of them have replicated our studies, so two of them were done by others, not by us. They found very, very similar results. So it seems like a robust finding. People often ask, well, will attention continue to get shorter and shorter? I can't say, right? We we would have to go back and, and measure them and see if it's uh, continuing. 
to decline. This is where I'm going to talk about multitasking, which hurts productivity. So I run personal productivity and time effectiveness courses, and I was looking at this book through this lens. Again, when I talk about Zoom meetings and team meetings and effective meetings there, like why does multitasking really hurt productivity? Like what's the harm in it? Like am I getting two jobs done at the same time? What's the harm? Yeah, so the the short answer is that people do worse. Their performance suffers when they multitask. So people sometimes think it's a badge of honor to be able to multitask. Look, I can accomplish two different things at the same time. But there there's actually three reasons why performance suffers. The first is that people make more errors. And we know this from, well, we know this from decades of laboratory research where people are brought into a laboratory. They're told to work on two different tasks at the same time, and they always make more errors as opposed to working on one task first to completion, then you move to another one and then to another one. And in real world tasks, there was a study done with physicians and physicians are interrupted quite a lot. They multitask. They're trying to work on, let's say, patient records. They're interrupted by a nurse. They're interrupted by other clinicians. They're doing something else. And it was found that they made a lot more prescribing errors when they were multitasking. The second way that performance suffers is that it takes longer to do anything when you're multitasking as opposed to working sequentially. Why? It's because every time we switch our attention, we have to reorient our attention to the new task. And that takes time. It's called a switch cost. And the metaphor I like to use is having an internal whiteboard in your mind. And every time we we need information to do a particular task, we hold that in our mind. It's called a mental model. And you're working on, say, writing an article or writing a report. You've got this mental model written on this whiteboard of your mind. You suddenly switch to do something else. You're erasing that whiteboard and you're rewriting new information for this new task. And every time you switch, imagine this erasing, rewriting, that takes time and it takes mental effort. And so it's using up our scarce and precious attentional resources just to reorient. Sometimes you might look at something like you read a news article about some terrible accident and it stays with you. And just like in the real world, you try to erase a whiteboard and you can't erase it completely. There's residue. We also have that residue in our mind that can stay with us. Like you're working on a report, you got stuck, or you're a software developer, you got stuck on a bug, but you have to move on to something else or you voluntarily do something else. And it sticks with you, right? So that hurts our performance. But the the last thing, and in my view, this this is really the worst, is that multitasking causes stress. And it's not just correlation. There, it's actual causality. So we know that when people are shifting their attention, they're more stressed. In the laboratory, we know that their blood pressure rises, both diastolic and systolic pressure rises. There's a physiological marker that shows people are stressed. In real world environments, we have used heart rate monitors. We measure something called heart rate variability that indicates people are stressed. We can sync together in time what their stress level is with exactly the activities they're doing on their screen. So when they're switching their screens a lot, we, we see their, their stress go up. And of course, people psychologically report that they're more stressed. So overall, multitasking is just, it's not a good thing. Yeah. And as I was listening uh, to you there, I was then thinking of people, we're doing this through Zoom. So we, we've got our full attention here. And then it, it brought to mind people who are emailing during Teams calls or Zoom calls and they have the camera off and they think 
they're attending the meeting and contributing. The evidence is really suggesting otherwise, because that's the good thing about your book. You have like laid out everything that you said there, how you conduct the test, you have graphs, you have all this. So what would you say to those people who are skeptical that say, actually, yeah, it's grand. I, I can I can multitask. I can I can do emails while I'm in a team's call. What I would say is you're actually not in the call if you're doing your email. Your attention is on your email. So it's it's a fallacy to think that people can actually pay attention to a meeting and and do another task at the same time. We we can't parallel process when two different activities require what's called controlled processing, right? The the opposite of controlled processing is automatic attention, right? When you walk, it's automatic. We don't think about walking, right? But if you're doing something that requires your attention, like an email or listening in a meeting or writing a report, that's controlled processing. We can't do two different tasks that require controlled processing at the same time. What we're doing is we're switching. And when we switch to one task, we've completely ignored what's going on with the other task. You you might hear things in the back of your mind. And if you're at a meeting and you're trying to do your email and all of a sudden someone mentions your name, there's something called the cocktail party effect. And all of a sudden you'll switch back to the meeting because it's it creates this kind of automatic reaction in you. We're so used to hearing our names. So you switch back to the meeting, but you have no idea what was being asked of you, right? So you're very embarrassed and you have to ask, sorry, can you please repeat that? So it's that fallacy of where you think you're productive and you're not. And and that brings me then to the other productivity killer, which is email. So I might ask you about Sisyphus struggle. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Okay. And another fact from the book, it takes 25 minutes to bring our attention back to the task after an interruption. So some people, it could be checking their email 50 to 150 times a day. What would you say to people who have that challenge with email? It is a challenge. Yeah. Email is, it's, the, the bane of our digital <laughs> age. So people, what one of the most robust findings we found is that email causes stress. And, and there again, there's causality there. We know that it causes stress. It's not just correlation. And we also know it puts people in a bad mood. Well, that's, if you're stressed, you're probably going to be in a bad mood anyways. People, we know that they check email on average about 77 times a day. So you're putting yourself in a position to be stressed, to be in a bad mood on average 77 times a day. So yeah, email, there are social pressures to respond to email, right? We would like to think, let's just pull out of email. If you're in a workplace situation, you can't so readily pull out of email or Slack, right? Electronic communications, because you're in this interconnected web with your colleagues where they rely on you for information, you rely on them. We have to have a kind of collegiality for a workplace to function. So people just can't pull out of email. You can delay checking it, right, to a particular time, which is better. But people have gotten into the habit of continually checking email. We we are looking for rewards because every so often you get that hit. You get an email, which is really great. We're looking for that. We want to maintain social capital with our colleagues. So we want to we want to do favors for our colleagues because we're hoping someday they'll help us out when we're in a pinch. So there's a lot of social reasons also why it's just hard to stop email. Towards the end of the book, you have so many solutions and you have ideas and questions to to ask yourself if you have some of these uh, digital behaviors, which I really, really like. And then as part of the book, then you 
introduce us to four different types of attention. So I found this fascinating as well. So what are the four different types of attention? Yeah. So let me start by saying people generally think of attention as having two states. You're you're focused and you're unfocused. But it's a, it's a lot more nuanced than that because when I was studying attention I realized that there's different ways of being engaged in something. You can be really engaged and and challenged. You're putting in a lot of effort. So if I'm if I'm reading something difficult or if I'm writing something, I have to put in some amount of effort. But there's other ways that we're really engaged where we're not putting an effort at all, such as watching a YouTube or playing playing a simple game like Candy Crush. We can be really engaged. Sometimes you're sucked into doing something for hours. So we ask people in a workplace two very simple questions throughout the day. Continually probe them throughout the day. For the thing you're doing right now, how engaged are you and how challenged are you? Really quick questions to answer. Then people were able to go right back to work. And I came up with this framework for these four kinds of attention. If you're really engaged and you're challenged, I I call that a state of focus because focus really involves some amount of effort. If you're really engaged with something and not at all challenged, like you're playing solitaire or watching a YouTube video, I call that rote attention. That's It's a label, rote attention. If you're not engaged and not challenged, I call that bored, which seems, <laughs> seems reasonable. And if you're challenged and not at all engaged, I call that frustrated. I, again, it's a label. An example is if I have a tech problem, I am just not engaged with trying to solve it, but I have to solve it because I can't do work and it's really challenging. So as a result, I I have this kind of frustrated attention. So we find that people, if we look at the focused attention, people tend to have peaks and valleys of focused attention throughout the day. Why? Because It requires effort. It requires mental resources to be able to focus. We can't have long periods of extended focus without attention waning. Think think of having a tank of attentional resources. That tank is not going to stay full. It's going to slowly leak (laughs) as we do different activities. So think of your day as having peaks of focus Generally, people have two peaks, people who we've studied in our sample. And then there's a valley, which is a time you you need to step back, take a break, replenish, build your resources back up. Then you can go back and you can focus again. So we, we see these rhythms of focus throughout the day. This is why people might be exhausted at night, is that they may be not structuring their day to accommodate for natural rest periods there. And and this is where we can utilize rote attention. I think, as you were saying, an artist or an author that loved ironing, for example, to recharge or to be creative or or whatever that was the case there. So is there is there an element there that we should structure our day very differently to make use of the peaks and then introduce those natural valleys? Like how long is a peak for? Is it like 90 minutes? What is it? Yeah, so it, it depends on what you're doing and how many attentional resources you're expending. If you're doing something really hard, maybe you won't be able to focus very long. It's a moderate amount of focus. You can spend longer. I mean, for something pretty hard, 90 minutes is that's that's a long time. But you know, most people when they schedule their day, they write down a to-do list. So write down a task and a time. This is the time I want to finish it. And they're not really considering the fact that they have these limited attentional resources. And so the important thing is to rather design your day 
understand when your peaks and valleys are, and, and that's easy to do. I'll talk about that in a moment. But to assign those tasks that require the most thought, the, the most creativity for those times for when you're at your peak focus. So how can you find out what your peak focus times are? Well, first of all, start with knowing what your chronotype is. So people, you can be an early type or a late type. Most people are moderate types. An early type is someone who can wake up at 5 a.m. and they get going really quickly, but then they also end their day a lot sooner. Late types, I've I've known a number of late types. They may not get started till 11 a.m. or noon, and then they're able to stay up through the night. So you can refine this by keeping a diary. And that's a really easy thing to do. And you simply, you can set an alarm. You can do this for three days. And every time the alarm goes off, you simply can, you can answer the two questions that I mentioned, how challenged and how engaged, or or simply a, a simple scale. On a scale of one to five, five extremely focused, one not at all focused. And then look at your own results, and then you'll you'll find out when your peaks are. Interestingly, we find that most people, when they come to work, they don't dive into focused work right away. Take some time to ramp up into a state of focus. They they do smaller tasks probably to get them out of the way. I know I do. First thing I do in the morning. So I do email just to get it off my plate. Otherwise, I'm thinking about it the whole day. Like, am I missing something? And I might look at news headlines. Maybe, maybe not a great idea, uh, especially when news is, is not positive. It might put me in a bad mood. But I still, I, I need to kind of get it out of the way. Otherwise, I'm wondering what's going on. And then I'm ready to dive in and, and start hard work. So, so you talk about sometimes email uh, can be a distraction and, and other distractions there. And, and sometimes we talk about, you talked about Candy Crush there or YouTube there. So some of their listeners, and this has happened to me and, and some of the courses are on, is people are kind of going, oh, I'm, I'm hooked on TikTok. And I was really fascinated by the element in the book where you talk about how movie shock durations are getting shorter and shorter. So the research that you have from the early days of cinemas to the length of shots in Marvel movies now is getting shorter and shorter all the time. So it seems like we're getting conditioned for shorter uh, movie shots and movie durations. So with that in mind, let's talk about two things here, if that's okay. One is if I'm addicted to, to TikTok, that could be a good thing, couldn't it? Like it could be replenish it or it could be a bad thing. What, what do you think? Because some people are kind of going, I'm just doing it on my break. So so what's it doing to my my brain? Are we conditioned that it's a nice break or what does it do? What's the impact so, on the brain? Yeah, so it depends how long you do TikTok. Doing it for a few minutes, that's fine, right? The problem is if we get hooked. And in the book, I talk about attention traps. And it's e- very easy to get trapped into spending a lengthy period of time on TikTok because we get these rewards and it's called intermittent reinforcement. Not every TikTok is going to be funny, but you know that every so often there's going to be a funny TikTok that comes along. That's hilarious. And it keeps us glued to TikTok, right? Because we get that reward. It's an intermittent reward. So we have to watch out for that. And so you have to set up a scheme. And I talk about hooks as one example. A hook is some external force that can bring you out of TikTok. Could could be a timer. Could be you're doing it before a meeting. If you're in the waiting room of a doctor's office, it's fine to watch TikTok because your name will get called soon. But if you have important things to do, Right, you're going to have to really set limits on doing that, that watching that TikTok because it's very easy to fall into a trap. So 
you can you can use it as a reward if you've really worked hard and you just feel exhausted. That's okay. Spend five, 10 minutes doing something fun and easy and then set a timer so that you don't fall into a trap, right? But that's the really the key is to make sure that we don't have infinite time in our day and we need to set limits. And that's what I loved about the book. Another one you mentioned was schedule a, a meeting that forces you to go, <laughs> if I if I keep going on this, I'll be late for the meeting or whatever, which is great. And then this is what, I, what I'm thinking about is some people that impulsivity to say, listen, I'm not in control of my TikTok or my digital behaviors. And, and what I really liked and towards the, the, the final third of the book, then you start talking about how do we gain agency over this? And this is where you say, uh, and you, I, I forget the person's work that you're quoting is human agencies, agency has four property, intentionality, forethought, self-reflection and corrective behavior. So tell me a little bit about human agency. If people have never heard human agency, they're kind of going, is that a recruitment agency? Like, What is, what <laughs> is human agency? Yeah. So this is work that comes from Albert Bandura, who's one of the most prominent social psychologists. He recently passed away. And he was very interested in the notion of how people can gain control or self-efficacy over their behavior. And his work, he he focused on how people could stop smoking, how people could control their weight. But he came up with these properties that are ways to help people learn about their behavior so that they can change, because ultimately it's about change. So the, the first property is intentionality. And so how does that relate to what we do on our devices? So, so many behaviors when, when we're on our screens are automatic. So we do, you see a notification on your screen, you automatically click on it without thinking. We see our, our phones, we automatically just grab them without thinking. It's an automatic reaction. We're working on, let's say, a report, and then we automatically go to check email because we have this urge inside of us. That's automatic behavior. So the idea is to be able to recognize when we have these automatic impulses and to raise them to a conscious awareness so that we're consciously aware when we're doing these kinds of actions. When you can make them conscious, then we can control them. Then we can come up with a plan. We can be more intentional. So a way to do that is to is to probe yourself. During the pandemic, my university offered a course on mindfulness-based stress reduction, which I, I found to be just an excellent course. And one of the ideas of mindfulness is to be able to focus on the present, what you're doing in the present. And I realized that we need to be more conscious of what we're really doing when we're on our screens. Otherwise, we can go off on a, a, a YouTube spree watching YouTubes without really being aware of how long we've been on it. So I probe myself throughout the day and I've learned it, it's at first it was kind of difficult. I had to consciously probe it. Now it's second nature. Whenever I have an urge to switch, I will probe myself and ask, why, why do I have to switch? Why do I need to read the news right now? And usually the answer doesn't make sense. There's not a good reason for it. It's usually because I'm bored I, or I'm procrastinating. I don't want to do the work in front of me or I've hit a stumbling block. A problem is hard. Well, then it's okay to maybe pull back for a moment. But the important thing is understand the reasons why you you feel you have to switch screens. And if you do that, then you can pause and think and come up with a strategy. And so for me, when I have this urge, oh, I need to check the news right now. There's a lot going on in the news. I'll say, wait, I'm going to work 30 more minutes and then I'm going to switch. And so I've I've come up with a plan. I'm intentional about my behavior. When I see my phone sitting next to me, 
I probe myself. Do I really need to look at my phone? No, I really don't. And if I'm, if I actually do go to a news site and I'm reading the news, I learn to probe myself. Okay, am I gaining benefit, or have I gotten the gist of this article? More than likely, I've gotten a gist, and if I just continue reading it, I'm not getting any any more benefits. I'm I'm just getting marginal returns, and so I can go back to my work. So that's intentionality. Forethought is when you understand how your current behaviors will affect your future self. And for a future self, I suggest thinking about yourself at the end of the day. How, how do you want to feel? Uh, where do you want to be at the end of the day? Well, I want to feel fulfilled. I want to feel rewarded that I put in a good day of work. I got a lot accomplished. And I want to be relaxing. I want to be reading my favorite book or maybe watching a show. But I want, I want to feel fulfilled, rewarded, and relaxed. And the stronger your visualization can be of how you see yourself at seven o'clock in the evening, the better able you are to control your present behaviors. So it's enough to stop you from going to social media, right? Stopping you from taking that TikTok splurge because you want to get back to work so that you can achieve that reward at the end of the day. The third thing is achieving self-regulation. And there's a lot of ways uh, to do that. You can uh, create an environment which makes it easier for you to focus. So close those browser tabs, close that clutter on your screen, which can potentially distract you. Of course, turn off notifications. I, I'm hoping most people by now realize that. Uh, use the ad blockers. They, those are killers. Um, put your phone in a drawer, leave it in another room. So create an environment that's not conducive to distract you. Work in a quiet area. So structure your, your environment so that it's easier to pay attention. I also suggest strategies around using social media. Some people have this, we, we all do in some ways, have a tendency to just kind of scroll indiscriminately on social media. Instead, be more intentional about how you use social media. Social media is not going to help you develop relationships. If you've already got a deep relationship, it can help you maintain it. But you're not going to form any kind of deep relationship with social media. So instead, think about those people who you really want to have relationships with. Uh, use social media to reach out to one of them. Choose one person. Reach out to one of them and say, hey, let's let's get together. Let's connect. And, and then you go back to work. And do that instead of just scrolling mindlessly through through all these feeds, which ultimately is not going to have a lasting benefit. And then we have the, the Dunbar number, which you talked about. And I love that part of your book, how, how, how fulfilling that was for you when you started reaching out to people and, and really were intentional with how you used social media. And finally, then we have the corrective behavior. Yeah, so there's ways that we can change as individuals. We can also change at an organizational level and also at a societal level. Now, at an individual level, I talked about this notion of designing your day, understanding the rhythms of your attention, making sure it's really important to design what I call empty space or negative space into your day, that is space for when you're actually not using your attentional resources, but you're just kind of letting yourself replenish. So I give the metaphor of a painting. A good artist really understands negative space. It's the space around the figure. 
And if it's done well, it really makes the figure stand out. It creates a lot of energy and dynamics in the painting. And it's the same with empty space during your day. Use it strategically to help yourself replenish and recover so that when you go back to work and you go into a state of focus, you really can perform your best, right? You've shored up those those mental resources. The problem is that most people don't take the time to have this, to pull back and replenish. And I know for many years, I never took that time. And I would reach the end of my day being burnt out, really, really burnt out, which was just, it was not good for my mental health, for my physical health. So I learned the importance of being able to take really solid breaks. And I do, and I take every day, I schedule time to go outside to the extent that weather permits and exercise. It's, it's just become part of my day. It's as important as the other work that I do. So some organizations have, they allow quiet time. So there's a period of say two hours during the day where employees can't send electronic messages and they know they're not going to receive electronic messages from others. So that's, that's really important. And the other thing that's really important is to psychologically detach from work at the end of the day, because we need time to not, not, we have to build up our resources again, but also psychologically, we need to get away from the, the pressures, the stresses of work so that we can be refreshed when we go back into work the next day. When you can effectively psychologically detach, you can better psychologically reattach to work. We can be more present in the workplace, which means having greater motivation, better engagement, right? Being more excited about the work you're doing. So psychological detachment is really important. I just wonder, do you have rituals yourself for that psychological detachment? So especially if people are working from home, I have my own ritual. So it's it's very simple. I just go up and just wash my face just to uh, freshen up a little bit. And I actually wear a, a shirt usually and sometimes a blazer just that this is my work uniform. And then I change into something very casual then. And that for me is like a little ritual for me to detach to say, actually, work is now finished for the day. Because especially if I'm working from home, then is, is there stuff that you could advise our listeners then to detach as well? Because some people might literally turn off their phone and if they have a work phone or maybe put the laptop away and cover it over so they, they physically don't get that or they visually don't get that mental uh, trigger that it's about work. What advice would you give people? Yeah, the, those are great rituals that you described that that you do. For me, I change locations, right? So if I have an office that I work in from home and then I leave it, right? So, or if I'm at the workplace, my university, I, I will leave. So that's a, a signal that work has ended. So it's really important to have these kinds of rituals and they can be personalized. I used to, there were times when I did exercise at the end of the day, and now I do it in the middle of the day, but that was also a, a way to make that transition between working and, and non-work. And so I know for some people, end of the day exercise can be a way to just kind of get all that stress out. And it's also a, a good transition signal that the day has ended and now my personal life can begin. And the book is full of advice there. You mentioned in that book is finding your balance. It's a psychological homeostasis. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So it, it is it, it is about structuring your week, structuring your day with exercise, knowing how much attention that you have. So there's a lot of self-awareness there, that self-reflection that you talked about before. So it's all part of that human agency, isn't it? It's really to track what's your diary like, because some people are 
just exhausted in the evening. So it's really about kind of going, reflect on your day to say, why was I tired? And, and what is it that I can change differently? Because so, a lot of people have back-to-back meetings, then they're going into email and all their attention is being de- depleted. Is is And then, and after this, we'll go into distractions then. So it's it's yeah. all that, isn't it? It, it is. It's so important to not get burned out at the end of the day. Also, consider that during the day, we, we do a lot of things that make us stressed. There are carryover effects. And so the stress we have at the end of our workday is carried over into our personal lives. And so if you get angry with your spouse or with your kids, some of that is due to just the carryover effects of all the stress we've had during the day. And so the the important message is to control that stress during the day. The idea of psychological homeostasis is that we need to use our tools, but we need to maintain psychological well-being. We need to do our work. We want to accomplish our work. We want to accomplish it as best as we can. But the typical narrative is push yourself to the limits to so in that way you'll be productive. And in fact, technology has given us the capabilities that we we can do more. We can write things better. And of course, with AI, this this is a whole new kind of world that we're entering. But we have these capabilities, and I think that people are using tech indiscriminately without thinking about how it affects well-being. And what I'm saying is let's let's be more aware of what is happening to our attention, to our well-being, and let's be more balanced because if you can maintain positive well-being, we will be more productive. There, there's a theory, it's called the broaden and build theory that shows that when people feel more positive, they can be more creative, right? They can perform better. And so let's let's not put the cart before the horse, but let's first think about achieving that positive well-being because that gives us the fuel to for us to be able to perform our best. We will be productive, right? But let's not neglect our, our well-being. And that brings to mind then that while this might be seen as toxic productivity, really what we're looking for is high performance consistently, not just in in bursts that then we burn out and then we try to replenish. And again, this brings to mind then the notion of is our brain structures being changed by our digital behaviors, whether it's TikTok, email, Zoom meetings, whatever. What's the impact on the brain structure? Yeah, some research suggests that our brains are changing. So there, there's actually been some really good research that shows that as a result of using GPS, the size of our hippocampus is shrinking because we're using less spatial navigation. We're outsourcing all of our navigation to a device, right? So we don't have to use our brains to do that. There's been some other research as well that shows that there are structures of the brain that might be changing. I mean, there's still more research that needs to be done, but it is suggestive that there are parts of our brain that might be affected by all this digital media. I mean, one thing that we can say is that when you sit in front of a screen, we're we're not using, this is more related to the way we move through the world, our sense, our kinesthetic sense of movement. Because we live in a three-dimensional world, yet all of our attention is focused on a two-dimensional screen. And so we're not really making use of all of our senses to the fullest. So that that certainly affects affects our well-being as well. And you mentioned well-being and then Maybe you were saying taking your stress out on a spouse or whoever at home after a day. And are our emotions related to attention? Is there an impact of that or is there any connection there? Yeah, absolutely. If you're 
stressed. I mean, a, a certain amount of stress is needed to yeah. be able to perform well. It's called the Yerkes-Dodson curve, uh, Yerkes-Dodds curve. And so there is this sweet spot where you need a little bit of stress. And I wouldn't call it exactly stress, but it's more arousal. So yeah. your body is kind of pumped up a little bit. But when when you you have too much arousal, right, then it starts becoming stress and it interferes with your attention and with your performance. And you just can't perform that well. There are personality differences. If you happen to be born with a personality trait called neuroticism, a lot of people are, neurotics tend to replay events over and over in their minds. So you had a talk with your boss and you keep replaying that, oh, should I have said something differently? Did it go well? That interferes with your ability to pay attention, right, on, on the current task you're doing. So yes, there are a lot of things, a lot of ways that emotions and as well as personality can interfere with our attention. This has been such a, an insightful podcast. So we're coming to the end of the podcast soon. So, but I, I just want to introduce the readers to this term, neuroergonomics. What is neuroergonomics? People are kind of going ergonomics. That's just the way that we set up our screen and we sit in our chair for a computer so we don't get repetitive strain. Like, what is neuroergonomics? Yeah, it's an emerging field where it's learning how tech can be used to understand our mental state, our use of attentional resources as we're doing real work. So this this has been used for people in who work in stationary positions like air traffic controllers, pilots. This kind of work has been done for quite a while, but now it's starting to be applied to people in a workplace, people who move around a little bit more who aren't just stationary. So it's still an emerging field, a lot more work to be done. I find it a very exciting field. And uh, yeah, so we'll see. So it's a way to be able to look at how the current work we're doing affects the use of our attentional resources. And, and with that in mind, then what, what do you think? And we'll, we'll let this be the, the last question. And thank you for your time today. What does the future hold for attention? So if we have TikTok and then we're not, we're using GPS and the hippocampus is is reducing, like what, what, where does that lead? Like, because I'm, I'm focused on, on my children now because like there's a one part there where you talk about children and social media and and then you talk about the ocean model of behaviors here. Social media has, has, has really I suppose, accentuated and, and targeted people and the way they track data and all these various different things. Like it's it's a fascinating insight. So what does the future hold? Because so if you were to give advice for, for parents like me and technology, like what would it be? What does the future hold for our children? Yeah, so I, I am an optimist. And, you know, it may sound like I'm presenting a doomsday scenario that our attention spans, have, they have been, getting shorter over the years. But I am an optimist because there have been other instances in the past where society has corrected itself through innovation, through change of course. So I do think that things will change. For example, there is a movement for, it's called the right to detach movement. So that workers are not penalized. They're protected by law from not having to answer electronic communications after work hours. And you'll be very happy to know that Ireland is at the forefront of this. There's been some other places in France, the El Khomri law, Ontario, Canada. The, the law, it's slow to catch on, but I do think that society is beginning to realize that this is a problem that we really need to solve. New York City tried to institute that law and they had a public hearing. It really got torn down. So because many companies in New York don't don't want employees to stop working after work hours. So I think that's an example of optimism. 
And I also think a lot of companies have are starting to pay more attention to employee well-being. And that's very positive. And a lot of companies are instituting different things that people can do during their breaks, for example, offering exercise rooms or uh, exercise classes, meditation. A lot of companies are are doing that. So I think there there is a recognition that people are getting burnt out and it costs companies money when people are burnt out, right? It's an expense for companies. And so it's to their advantage to be proactive to prevent employee burnout, right? So it is important to consider well-being. I also think, and this is ironic, but I do think that tech can provide us with solutions to help us focus better. I think that people will end up having their own personal agents, which can help teach them, not do the work for them, but teach them how they can focus better, help them understand what their natural rhythms are of attention so that people can can really learn for themselves. And, and all data, of course, should be stored locally on each person's computer and not uh, with tech companies, right? We, we need to have the right to own our own data that gives information about our, our own ability to focus. So these are just a few of the things, but, but I am optimistic about the future. A very telling then that New York City, the city that never sleeps, doesn't have the right to disconnect. And funnily enough, you mention it in the in the book that it also has scores very high in neuroticism. So yeah, I'm sure there's a connection there somewhere. <laughs> that the fear that people aren't going to work or we want to achieve something. Gloria Mark has been a pleasure speaking to you today on the podcast. And if people were to find out more about you and your book, how might they do so? So you could go to my website, which is www.gloriamark.com. I've recently just started a Substack uh, newsletter. So I'll be posting there regularly. So if you're interested, please search for Substack and my name. You can also find me on Twitter and you can find me on LinkedIn and happy to correspond with folks. Gloria, thank you so much for joining the Workplace Podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss. Our special thanks to this episode's guest for sharing their expertise with us. If you found this episode valuable, please rate and review it. For updates on future episodes and to get in contact with us about any workplace topics, please follow Yellowwood on LinkedIn and Twitter at Different Paths. As always, you can head over to yellowwood.ie for any other information. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner, provider of executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organisation.